so maybe the best way for me to introduce this, I'll just read the title and then you can figure out how you feel about it. Okay, speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues and ex- examination of relevant biblical passages. Are you feeling okay so far? And just a reminder, this is, the, this is a Baptist church. Oh, Rachel, I thought you were leaving. Okay. All right, good. Okay. All right, so I want to begin by making a statement about, uh, for those of you who just plunked in here today, we're doing a series on spiritual gifts, and I had to get to this sooner or later. And so at this moment, it's sooner. Okay, so let me just say a few qualifying things. First of all, God loves His church. He loves His church. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. The Lord loves His church. God builds His church. In Matthew 16, 18, it says, when, remember when Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, and Jesus replied, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. So he will build his church. He loves his church. He's building his church. And he sends his church. He sends his church into all the world. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Christ is with us as, we, as He sends us, and He gifts His church. He gives gifts. He gifts His church. In Romans 12, 5 to 8, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. We are one body in Christ, individually members of one another, having gifts that differ, According to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion, uh, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So we are in the process of considering a long list of spiritual gifts that are mentioned and presented in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, more specifically after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that is post-resurrection, and then most emphatically beginning at the day of Pentecost following the century early earlier prophesied event of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit recorded in Acts 2. So there's a momentum that was beginning. There was the the Old Testament and the promise of a time, a season of coming, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then there would be the, the life of Jesus and a man filled with the Holy Spirit like no one had ever before seen. And then we have Jesus promising the Holy Spirit to those whom we would leave behind. I'm going to the Father. I will send the Holy Spirit. Then the Um, promise of Jesus when he commissioned the church in Acts chapter 1 before he left he reminded them again I will give you the Holy Spirit then he leaves and the Spirit of God comes in a paradigm shifting moment that separates history the resurrection of Jesus and is the centerpiece of history the life death and resurrection of Jesus And we are on this side of the 
season of Jesus coming and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. And Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost was that moment when the Spirit of God came and therefore inspired everything we're talking about right now. So in this long list of spiritual gifts mentioned in the Bible, um, let me list them and you don't, you, you probably won't have time to write them all down. I'll get back to a list. I gave a list out a while back, but I'm, I'm redoing the list, tweaking a little bit how I want to, um, how, as I've gone through this series, how we can define and talk about spiritual giftings. You don't need to um, worry about that right now. I just want to list all these gifts and I want to think about how generous God is. I want you to think about your Christmas tree and if you had um, 24 gifts from God under that tree, how excited you'd be. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is my tree. And I give these wonderful gifts to the church. And, and he wants us to use and be excited about. And, and he wants to disperse and give these gifts. So here they are. Administration, apostleship, celibacy, deliverance, discernment, encouragement, exhortation, evangelism, faith, giving, healing, Helping, service, hospitality, intercession, interpretation, knowledge, leadership, mercy, miracles, missions, pastoring, prophecy, teaching, tongues, wisdom, worship. That's a lot. Boy, the Holy Spirit must be busy if he's giving all these gifts, continually giving gifts to his church. So I'm going to make a, um, some of you are probably wondering, like, where, where, where is he? Where are we going? Um, I thought of five words that can just completely set the stage for where we're going. And I think as soon as I say it, some of you are like going, oh, I'm glad he said that. And some of you are going, I can't believe he said that. So let me just, let me just tell you five words. I, I, think it's, I think you'll understand my position as soon as I, as soon as I say it. If you've been wondering, where's he gonna, what's he going to say when we get to speaking in tongues? Just five words. I just need five words. Speaking in tongues, phew, that's three, I only got two more, still happens. That's my position. In reading and studying the Bible, there is an expectation that speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues are gifts that were experienced in the early church by some, but not by all. So when you read the Bible... You have no problem coming to the conclusion that speaking in tongues was taking place in the early church. And some, not everyone, had this spiritual gift. But some, not all, had this spiritual gift. You, you, can't, you can't deny that if you read through the New Testament. It's just there. But if we take the Bible alone as our guide, we take the Bible and not endless books or commentaries. And I have a lot of books and commentaries. And I actually have quite a few on this topic. I, yesterday, after the men's breakfast, I, I went to my office and I started collecting. I filled my book satchel so fat with books. And they were all about the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. And some of them were whole books specifically written on speaking in tongues. So over the years, I've kind of collected and kind of read. I've always had interest in this topic um, okay, so, but taking the Bible alone, I didn't bring my books up here. I'm not going to quote any of my books. We're just going to take the Bible alone. Not people's personal 
opinion, not people's church experience when people say, well, we never did that in my church. That's not our guide. But standing upon sola scriptura, scripture alone, there is reason to expect. If I just took my Bible and believe it, I take this book and I read it and I hold on to it. I say, this is my basis for my faith. Then there is reason to expect that speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues are spiritual gifts that would be experienced in our church by some, although not by all. And so I'm going to go through some passages. We won't make it all the way through. We figured out this morning we weren't going to make it all the way through. The, I have nine passages. We'll make it through about six, but then we're going to save the best for last. Okay, so the passage number one is Mark 16, verses 15 to 18. There is no record of Jesus speaking in tongues. It was not part of his ministry as far as we know. But there is one instance of Jesus declaring this phenomenon of speaking in tongues would be part of the wonders and signs of his church. In Mark 16, 17, it says, These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues. So there, it, it's in Mark's gospel account. There's four gospels in this only gospel account that says anything in the ministry of Jesus. It doesn't say that he did this, but he's declaring that this will happen after the age of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So this description of the church of Jesus is attached to and even embedded in the Great Commission. That may surprise some of you that this, what I read is in the Great Commission, in Mark's account of the Great Commission, is telling us... Mark, probably through Peter, he probably learned what he did. Mark wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He hung out quite a bit with Peter. That's why sometimes people might refer to Mark as Peter's gospel, Peter's account of the gospel. Um, Mark is telling us that this is what Jesus told them, that likely, probably during his 40 days after the resurrection, is probably when he told it to, and he was preparing commissioning them to go to make disciples of all nations. So listen to how Mark couched the gospel. Remember, we, most of the time we always go to Matthew 28 when we refer to the Great Commission. And, but listen to the Great Commission, or we go to Acts 1-8. But listen to the Great Commission in Mark 16. And listen to what's embedded in here. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And he's just simply saying unbelievable things will happen. Unbelievable things will happen and accompany my gospel. Okay, Acts chapter 2, that's passage. Passage number 2 is Acts 2. The first mark just kind of says, wow, there's some, this is some of the stuff that's going to happen when my gospel goes out. And Acts chapter 2 is something of a supernova of the Holy Spirit that included extremely loud occurrence like the powerful wind and a mighty storm, a visible descent of something, um, whether it was some kind of spiritual puff or image or substance that looked like tongues of fire. That's all we know. Is that whatever it was, it looked like a tongue on fire 
coming down and resting upon believers who began to do something that had never before been recorded in Scripture. The people upon whom these tongues rested began to speak in languages they had never before learned and did not even understand as they uttered the gospel in multiple languages. They didn't even know that they were uttering the gospel in other languages, languages that they didn't even know. And so in Acts chapter 2, 1 to 13, listen to this account. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, like all the believers. It was like all the believers. This is all there was at that time. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now these there, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Remember, they're all this group. They're all Jews, but they've come from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they, they like people in the house, of course, heard it, but people outside the house heard it, and they come running to where this. Sound is like, what? what is going on? It just drew their attention and a, a big crowd came. Um, and it says that uh, they came together, they were bewildered. And each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Everyone heard the gospel in their language, their native language from the country they came to. Remember, they were Jews scattered Abroad, and they've come to Jerusalem to worship God on, the, on one of the high holy days, as Jews were accustomed to doing. They would come back to Jerusalem, and when they were there, they heard the gospel in the language of their homeland. Not they were expecting to hear the the everything in Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew, um, but they were hearing it in the language they come came from. Listen, listen to this. They were amazed. And astonished. Are not all these speaking Galileans? Like, what are, how do these Galileans know my, how do they know all these languages? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, all the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, and both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What, is it, what does this mean? But others mock, saying they're filled with new wine, or they're basically saying, others are laughing, saying, Oh, they're, they're drunk. That's what they're doing. These aren't real languages. They're, they're just drunk. Here's some ob- observations from Acts 2. Number one, the Holy Spirit did this, not men. It's like the disciples didn't think, hey, we've got a really cool plan. They didn't think of this. They didn't have Google Translate. They spoke in tongues. People spoke the gospel in foreign language they had never before learned to all the language groups represented in such a way that all the nations heard the gospel in their native language all simultaneously. It was truly a miraculous event. The result was astounding too. And here's, some, here's the results. First of all, a large number of people heard the gospel. 
A large number of people believed the gospel. A large number of people received the gospel. A large number of people were baptized. A large number of people were added to the church of Jesus that day. So here's what happens and to summarize Acts 2. When the Holy Spirit is working, these are the kinds of results you get. When people experience the mighty works of God, there will be conversions, church growth, discipleship, and much praise to God. So in summary, in Acts 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is they spoke, part of it was they spoke in tongues where the speaker spoke a language he did not know to people who heard the gospel in a language they did know and God was greatly honored and worship to God was powerfully magnified and lifted up. That is an impressive passage. A third passage. First passage was Mark 16. Jesus is saying, here's some of the things that are going to happen. In Acts chapter 2, here's the first example of it happening. And Acts chapter 10 is the next recorded example of it happening. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, the whole chapter is this amazing chapter where another huge shift takes place. The first one was Jesus establishes the new covenant. The old covenant, based on what Jesus was done, is no longer essential. It moves from, it's all fulfilled, and so the better new covenant comes, and that's established by Jesus, by His life, death, and resurrection. And then Pentecost shows a new epoch, a new age in the church of Jesus Christ, and that's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's all tied into the whole story. But it is clearly a momentum it's an unbelievable shift that we need to understand if we're to be a New Testament church of Jesus Christ. And that was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant. And then Acts chapter 2 was when it just went out, started going out among the Jews. And so the first part of the Great Commission in Acts 1 says the Spirit of God will come with power, and He did. And it says that there will be people in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And Acts 10 brings the rest of that. Now it starts going out to the Gentiles, to the nations. It never before happened like this. There were a few people that became converts to Christianity. We might call those proselytes. They came in, but they had to come in through more of a a Jewish path, an old covenant. They were coming in an old covenant path. And Jesus just blows the doors off that thing in Acts 10. Acts 10 is a huge shift for worldwide evangelization to all nations, not just or specifically or more particularly to the Jewish nation. In Acts 10, Peter goes to Caesarea to preach the gospel to Gentiles and to the family of an important soldier named Cornelius. And Peter was reluctant to go because it was a crowd of Gentiles. God gave Peter a vision of previously unclean animals and told him to eat and told him to go. And Peter went and preached the gospel to them and they believed in Jesus. He preached the gospel and they believed in Jesus. There was no language. There's nothing there about the language. He preached the gospel in the language he normally spoke and they heard it as he spoke it like normal and many of them believed. In Acts chapter 10... Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Peter was preaching and the Holy Spirit came. 
and the believers from among the circumcised, that is the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Like they weren't ready for this. They weren't expecting this. And it says, For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Like Peter's saying, You remember guys what happened in Acts 2? It's happening here now in Acts 10. They need to be baptized. They're one with us. The Holy Spirit has come in such a powerful, powerful way. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So here's some interesting facts about this Acts chapter 10. First of all, Peter preached the gospel and this time language was not a barrier. They heard Peter preach and they um, were amazed at the gospel. And Peter, the gospel communicator this time, was not speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 2, the gospel communicators were speaking in tongues. And then the people heard. In this instance, Peter's not. The Spirit comes and Peter's not the one speaking in tongues, but it's the people, the Gentiles, are speaking in tongues. And... Towards the end of Peter's evangelistic presentation, like he's preaching the Word of God. He's preaching to Gentiles. He's so excited. It's like, what is happening? He's preaching God's Word to all these Gentiles. And it was miraculous that he was even there. But he was there under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And he was preaching. And right in the middle of his presentation, the Spirit of God drops in. It says the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Word. The Spirit comes on those who heard the Word, not those delivering the Word at this time. It says the Spirit of God came particularly, specifically on those who heard the Word and the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, like these brand new converts. This time it is Gentiles who are speaking in tongues. They, the Gentiles, were speaking in tongues, a language unknown to them, and it instantly reminded the disciples of what had happened to them at Pentecost. So they did this after hearing the gospel, not in order to hear the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, they were speaking in tongues in order for people to hear the gospel. Now, those speaking in tongues are in response to the gospel. It's very interesting. This was not the disciples speaking in tongues. It was the Gentiles speaking in tongues. For the disciples to hear and see. The first occasion was for, for the, the believers, the ones who needed to hear and see were the unbelievers. And they came to faith. Now we have, it's interesting, now it's the disciples who are watching what God is doing, declaring the works of God. So the language here in Acts 10 was not the barrier. Therefore, the speaking in tongues was not in order for those to hear the gospel, but to display the power of the gospel being believed by the Gentiles. 
The disciples did not say, we heard them speak in a language they did not know, in a language we do know. There is no evidence or statement that Peter and the Jews understood the language that they spoke in tongues, but only that they spoke in tongues. The emphasis was not on what they spoke. The Spirit gave them a supernatural utterance to prove that He had spoken. It was not on what they said, it's who had spoken. So, this is not an exact repeat of Acts 2. It is similar in that it included the preaching of the gospel, the pouring down of the Holy Spirit, belief in the gospel and conversion and speaking in tongues. In that way, it's similar, and here's how I think it's different. It is different that in the, it is, was Gentiles believing in the gospel. It was a brand new converts speaking in tongues. There was not a language barrier. The speaking in tongues is not to cross the language barrier to prove that God was crossing the ethnic barrier. New nations, ethnicities. Gentiles, non-Jews. Gentiles were speaking in tongues. Gentiles were receiving the Holy Spirit. Gentiles are included in Christ's church. Any of you Gentiles glad? I sure am. Gentiles were given a language by God. No one could doubt what was happening. Men did not think this up or work this up. God thought this up and rained this down. God was on the move and God was about to explode the gospel farther than ever before. And Jews believed in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. But now the Holy Spirit was about to propel the gospel forward with rocket fuel to the nations. And he was working signs and wonders to prove it. Okay, passage number 4 is Acts 19. In Acts chapter 19, um, it happened while, the apostle, uh, while Apollos was at Corinth. So we had what Mark wrote, what Peter preached, what Peter preached, Peter's sermon in Acts 2, Peter's sermon in Acts 10, and now the apostle Paul who wasn't even at Pentecost He wasn't there at Acts 10, but he had become a Christian in Acts 9. And very quickly, he came up to speed. And he embraced what God was doing. And he's the one who gives us all this information in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. And so in Acts 19, it's Paul. When while at Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the island country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. So he came to Ephesus, probably went to the synagogue, found some disciples, some who believed in Jesus, but they were behind in their information. Like they, did, they weren't up to speed on everything that had taken place. They were off in Ephesus in another country, another continent. And so there they were in Ephesus. And Paul finds he's excited that they're believers in the Messiah. And he says, did, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, were believed, when you believed? And they say, well, well, no, we haven't heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So they were, they were a bit behind. They didn't have the latest info. On hearing this, they were, they were baptized. Oh, uh, well, then it says in verse 4 in John... Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance and telling the people to believe in the one who has come after him, that is Jesus. So they had only been baptized into John's baptism. Paul tells them about Jesus and 
the coming of the Holy Spirit and Jesus' baptism and what John had prophesied that Jesus fulfilled. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul went and laid his hands on them. And the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And when Peter had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. It's interesting how verse 6 and 7 repeat the same phrase with just... One sentence later, two sentences later. In verse 6 it says, The Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And so if you weren't very amazed at that, he says it right again. If you didn't hear it the first time, it's like, I don't think you, I don't think you understood it. I don't think you got it. Verse 7 says the exact same thing. The Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So Paul came upon believers that had not yet heard or understood the importance of the resurrection and Pentecost and they were still operating under Old Testament blessings and not yet enjoying the superior New Testament blessings. So Paul was thrilled and excited to bless them with this knowledge, new power, new experiences in the Spirit. He so wants them to know the fullness of the new covenant wants them to enjoy the Holy Spirit and receive bountiful gifts. So he prays for them, he lays hands on them. He doesn't say or declare what he thinks will happen. He's not sure. He didn't know what, exactly what's going on. He's like going, oh, guys, I'm going to lay hands on you. Here's what's going to happen. He wasn't in control. He was just obeying God. So he lays hands on them. And the Spirit once again shows up and shows out. And Paul was not at Pentecost, but Paul clearly had the same theology of the Spirit, the same theology of baptism, the same Spirit of God, the same expectation of what the Spirit might do and was doing in the churches and all and was in line with the apostles in the early church teaching. And they were experiencing outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And if Acts makes anything clear is that it, the Holy Spirit is in charge of the gospel mission. If the book of Acts makes anything clear, Peter, not Paul, not any of the 12, not any new converts. The Holy Spirit was in charge. If I could put something over the book of Acts, maybe a, a subheading, it would have to do something with here's what happens when the Spirit is in charge. That's the book of Acts. That's the dynamic. And folks, when people come and say, well, I don't like the church and there's this going on in the church and that going on in church, that's what happens when men are in charge. That's what men do. When people make their complaint against the church and say, well, this is that. Well, it ain't the Holy Spirit doing that. It's men. And so when the Holy Spirit is in charge, these are the things, reading my Bible, I would expect to happen. I'm, I'm just reading what, if I had, if I didn't have all my commentaries and my education and where seminary and, and professors told me this passage means this and this passage means that, I'm appreciative of people. I'm very appreciative. But if I didn't have all that and I would read my Bible and I was lost on an island somewhere and someone gave me a Bible and said, well, this is Christianity and I was to learn it raw and fresh straight from reading my Bible, I would not come to the conclusion that my seminary professors gave me on many things. And I would come, if I was just off reading my Bible and a group of us met and we were out on this island and someone found a Bible and said, wow, so we, someone would read and learn about Jesus and they'd say, wow, listen to these things going on. And they would conclude, well, I think these things ought to be going on for us. It, there's nothing in this book that would give you the idea that certain, the things that some men have told me in my training, these things stopped. If I was to read this book, I would not come to the conclusion of some of my mentors. 
I would go, well, Lord, how does this work in our church? And that's exactly what I'm asking. They were experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was in charge. Men weren't. Men were surrendering to the Spirit. Men were bowing to God. Men were coming and bowing before God and worshiping God. And men were coming looking for God and listening to God and seeking God. And they weren't coming and going, well, and the church I grew up in, we did it like this. They didn't talk like that. The church they grew up had just been, the doors and walls had been blown apart. The altar of God had been moved. They did no longer have to bring. You, you, you think you're going through shell shock? Can you imagine the shell shock of these early Jews who all their life for a couple of thousand years, their whole idea of worshiping God was coming and bringing their animal and offering a sacrifice and bleeding it out at the door of the tabernacle or temple and letting the priest of God take the blood into the holy place. And now they're coming and saying, you don't need to do any of that. No wonder the Jews got so mad. They're like some people who say, you can't do that because we've never done it like this. But when you come with this book and you just start asking and people come to church and they just start saying, Lord Jesus, will you teach me what your word teaches? I can't sort out. I've had so many teachers tell me so many things over my Christian life. And my, 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 my mom's side of the family says this and my dad's side of the family says this and the preacher I once heard this and the last podcast I heard said this and that book someone gave me says this. I'm confused. Is there anywhere that I can just find pure, unadulterated truth. How about the Word of God? So when I open this book, I'm coming to pure, unadulterated truth. But so is everybody else who comes to it. So I need to ask one more question. Who will teach me? Lord, who will teach me? Will you teach me, Lord? Holy Spirit, will you teach me? Do you do that? Do you still do that? Do I need to get it through somebody? Thank God for teachers. The Bible gifts teachers. But Lord, how am I going to know what's up and what's down? Will you teach me? Can you do that? Do you, is there anywhere in your word that says you might do that for me? Be my teacher. Holy Spirit, will you come and teach us, God? Are there people afraid of where our church might go? Are there people going, where, where, where are we going with this? Are you kidding me? You trust my leadership? Are you that crazy? You're not here to pick a pastor that goes where you want things to go. We need to surrender our whole selves to our God where He wants to go. I tell you, it scares me to be in charge of a church. And if you ever think I'm in charge of the church, then you need to go somewhere else where, where there's no man in charge. You know what scares me? It's when people stand up to handle this book and it becomes obvious sooner or later that the Holy Spirit is not in charge and that some person is or some little inside circle of people are or some system of theology is. This is very true. There's good theology and there's bad theology. But the only way to know the difference is if the Holy Spirit's leading. You, you get that? You understand that? Okay, so let me finish. Um, let me just tell you where we're at. We're, we're coming back and we haven't even gotten to the sandwich yet. The sandwich is 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 and the two pieces of bread are chapter 12 and chapter 14 and the meat is chapter 13. 
And if you know those chapters very well, then you get it. The meat is the love chapter. There's, when, in a discussion of gifts in chapter 12 and chapter 14, a deep discussion, the deepest discussion of spiritual gifts and the clearest picture inside of a worshiping church in all of the New Testament. There's no comparison to any other passage. This passage gives us more insight into what goes on in a worshiping New Testament church than any other passage. There's some other passages that hint at some things. This passage, Paul is dealing directly with worship in the local church. And it's not any accident that in the discussions of chapter 12 and chapter 14 with much controversy surrounding the Corinthian church, but also just surrounding their use of spiritual gifts, he sticks the roast beef in chapter 13. I tell you, folks, if I order a roast beef sandwich and there's nothing but two pieces of bread I bite into, I'm probably going to throw it on the ground and step on it. I want that roast beef with that provolone cheese. Am I making anybody hungry? And God says, well, don't you want the meat of my relationship with you? And that would be love. And so there's nothing worse than people who are gifted, who are using their gifts and operating without love. When people stand up and say, look at me, look at me, instead of look at Jesus, look at Jesus. But here's what we want as a church. Here's what I'm declaring for our church, and I hope you're all right with this. Lord God, we want you in any gift you want to give us. We want you when we come to church and any gift you want to give us. And can I just say, just in case you're confused, some of you may say that this is all brand new stuff. It's not at all. And let me also say this. If you're worried about speaking in tongues, can I let you know that we've got quite a few people that already do that and you didn't even know it? We have quite a few people in our church that speak in tongues, pray in tongues. They don't stand up and go, okay, guys, it's, uh, it's now that moment when I speak in tongues. Or, all right, guys, get ready. It's already something that exists in the life of our church, even though you might not be aware of it. And the only question I'm asking is, I'm not expecting that we're going to have a sudden increase. And, you know, I don't have a meter that says we're aiming for 80% tongue speakers. Folks, what a stupid thing to do because I'm not in charge of it. I have asked God for this gift and he has not been pleased to give it to me. And I said, I've many times prayed like this, Lord, wouldn't it be helpful if you gave me the gift since I'm the leader and then people would like, that would help them. It's like, when do you think you got in charge? It's like the Lord rebuked me. The very thing I was asking him was contrary to the very thing he says he does. It's up to him. So you don't need to be going, I want this or that. Just as simply as just say, Lord, give me whatever you have. And bless our church with any gift that will help us do the work of the gospel. And if this is going to help God, then give it to us. Okay, are you with me? All right. Well, let's pray. Oh, God, we pray for your Holy Spirit. We want to love you more deeply. We want to come with greater expectation every single week, oh, God. Please help us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want, to, I want to offer something right now that after we close, we're going to have a little luncheon over in the fellowship hall. And anyone, it's open to someone. What we're going to do is we're going to share the gospel bridge. 
We've got a little sandwich lunch, and don't expect something real big. I don't even know that we have roast beef. I was just bragging about roast beef. I don't even know that we have roast beef. But we've got some meats, PB&J. It's not, the, lunch won't be the most exciting thing you have, but if you've never clearly heard the gospel, that may be the most exciting thing you ever had. So we're going to share the gospel over there. We've got a, a, a testimony or two, very brief. The whole thing will probably take 45 minutes. But if you've never heard the gospel, simply explain or you want to know how to share the gospel very simply, we're going to give one of the simplest gospel explanations, the Roman road, the bridge, whatever it's called. You want to come over there, just walk over there and join us, and we're going to eat, and we're going to talk about Jesus and the gospel. If you have questions, if you're not sure that you're a Christian, a great time to come, or you just want to learn a simple explanation so you can share your faith with other people, then come over there, grab a sandwich, and grab hold of Jesus, and maybe Jesus will grab hold of you, okay? Let's praise God.